you will, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I was meeting with somebody this week who was trying to look, look at the Scriptures, couldn't find a book of the Bible, but they could find Hebrews. Because this is uh, almost two years now, this has been a steady diet of, of our book, of our work. Working verse by verse, phrase by phrase, in some cases word by word, hardly a single word in uh, Hebrews has been unturned by us. We've been going on. This is, I counted up, this is my 60th message here on the book of Hebrews. In some ways, I'm sad to see this book go. Uh, It's been a great ministry to me and my soul. Helped me week in and week out really to see the the greatness of Jesus Christ. feel privileged to finish this book. I have a a pastor friend of mine who... uh, is not pastoring right now. He would like to pastor, but he said kind of in his, his time, he's not been preaching week in, week out. He's just been perusing the Bible and studying it. And uh, he said that Hebrews has become for him his favorite book in the Bible. And uh, really the reason for that is because of how it lifts up the supremacy of Jesus Christ and how it teaches us how to see the Old Testament and how it all climaxes in Him. And he, he's been telling me how he's, he's longing to preach it. He's longing to be back in a pulpit so he can preach it again. As I was talking with him, I, I just felt, you know what, I've been, I've been privileged to be able to go through this book of Hebrews. If you've been blessed by us at church, I've been doubly blessed. I, I know I, I learn far more than even you all uh, can learn or can retain. It's helped me to see Jesus and His glory. It's helped me to see the Old Testament. So church, we've been in it two years, I said. But you know, for me, the story is longer than that. Uh, I've been in it probably four years. It took me two years to memorize the book first. And so I've been in it four years and been meditating upon its truth even for two years before I even opened up the book for you all. And just, you know, looking at how great Jesus is, we have no reason not to follow Him. He's entirely trustworthy. He's our everything. So let us give our all to follow Him. Now, I know for some of you at Rock Valley Bible Church, Hebrews is all you've known. I was with uh, Charlene Wietek, and she said, you know what, all we've known is Hebrews. Um, We've been here less than two years. Well, we do preach other things other than Hebrews, all right? In those past two years, uh, it's about 100 messages or so. 60 have been on Hebrews, kind of been the diet. We've had 30 or 40 messages from other parts of Hebrews, whether that's in the book of Ruth, we went through that. Our transition from an auditorium at Rockford Christian High School to this building, we did some topical series on that, some holidays, visiting pastors, and those sort of things. But when we fall back, that is our, that is our bread and butter, just the, um, the book of Hebrews to begin. Beginning in August, our next book, by the way, is going to be the book of Second Timothy. Uh, it was, um, boy, probably about a year ago, I went uh, down to DeKalb, as I do about every six months or so. I'm kind of a, a consortium there of some pastors who study the Word together. And uh, we're, our, our topic there was Second Timothy. And I came back home from that couple days down in DeKalb and I said, Yvonne, this is a great book. It really ministered to my soul. It talks about ministry. talks about hardship in ministry. talks about how to press on. And uh, last summer, our family just started memorizing that. It's our vacation memory. And, uh, you know, we got through maybe two and a half chapters, I'm, I'm guessing. And I finished that uh, recently. So I've been in Second Timothy this past year. I've been preaching through Hebrews. So I've been in Timothy a year It'll take us oh, maybe nine months or so to preach through it. But I'm excited to get onto that. Fan the flame and fight the fight. Fan the flame of ministry and fight the fight of life and of faith. Um, in fact, even in August, when I get back from a vacation, we're going to gather some pastors together. And Second Timothy is going to be our book. 
And we're just going to talk over and help for our encouragement, for our edification, some of it selfish a little bit because it's going to help me just as we look at 2 Timothy. So it, but if you're looking to prepare for that, just start reading now. A chapter every day and you'll get through the book ten times before we um, even start looking at that. Well, this morning we come to the end of Hebrews. My message title this morning is um, Closing Words. A Closing Word, verses 20 through 25. I, I want to read it for you here. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equipped you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. With whom, if he comes soon... I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. My first point comes the first two verses. A benediction. The author has requested prayer for him himself. Verse 18, he says, pray for us. Verse 19, he says, I urge you all the more to pray for us. And now in verse 20, he turns and prays for them. It's really an awesome prayer filled with themes from the book of Hebrews. Filled really with everything you need to live godly in Christ Jesus. In other words, if this prayer is answered in your life, you will live a contented, God-honoring, God-pleasing life. I remember one father telling me that this is the prayer that he prays every day for his children. And I think it's a good practice. Because it is so all-encompassing really to help focus our lives Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant equip you in everything to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a great prayer to pray for your children. It's a a great prayer to pray for us church. And I, I want to just spend some time lingering here on this verse, kind of dissecting it. You remember when you were in your high school class or your junior high class, you dissected a fish or a frog or a shark or something. You, you kind of take it and you, 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 you cut it open and you look at it and then you look at the hole and then you look at it. That's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of look at it a little bit, look at the hole, look at it a little bit, look at the hole, just savoring these words. We might grasp them and, and rejoice in it. I've called my point a benediction because the practice that takes place, the practice that takes place in many churches the end of a service, a pastor raises his hand and speaks a good word. A bene means good. Diction, to say. He says a good word. And how many church services across this land all over have closed with these words. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Indeed, those are good words. And I long that they would be answered in your life. In fact, let's just pray now that they'd be answered. Father, I think of these words and how all-encompassing they are, how much we need You. You are the God of peace. You are the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You are the God who brought in an eternal covenant Father, You are the One who works in us mightily. 
And I pray that all these things would be true. May we know Your peace. May we believe and trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is our great Shepherd. He is the One who guides us and directs us. May we submit to His shepherding leadership of us. Father, we are thankful for His working in us. The fact that He's promised the eternal covenant. I pray these things might sink into our hearts. That we know them and embrace them and live by them. Father, so do Your work now as we just open these words up. They are Your words, they're not mine. And help us, Lord, to, to see You today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, first phrase here, the God of peace. Coming right here in verse 20. It's a description of God. Very generic, very broad. He is the God of peace. That can speak about peace within your heart that God gives. That can speak about peace among brethren. That can speak about the peace with God in harmony with Him. And I think that it encompasses all of these. All these scenarios would have been a comfort to these original readers. Some were having doubts about God. Some were having doubts about Jesus. Many were facing hostility from those around Him, around themselves, for their faith in the Messiah. But God brings peace in all those circumstances. Peace with Him, peace in ourselves, peace with other people even when facing a great conflict of sufferings, even when being made a public spectacle like these people were. You know, I was on Facebook uh, just a couple of days ago and um, doing, I'm not sure, just kind of looking there. I hit uh, my college, Knox College I went to, was looking at all the people who also said they went to Knox College and was kind of looking through, just kind of remembering old names of old people that was there. And uh, there's one name that just really caught my attention. He was a, a genius, one of the brightest men that I ever knew. Uh, just a math whiz in, entirely. So I just Googled him. You know, in the day and age, he, he just, I Googled his name and boom, up popped it and uh, come to find out he committed suicide nine months ago. And um, he drove his car to the top of a parking garage and then jumped one morning. Um, he left a suicide note with a friend who posted it on the internet, got to read his suicide note. It's very interesting. No mention of God whatsoever. Very articulate but battles with depression and anxiety and insomnia. And he talks about his panic attacks. He talked about how his quality of life is going down. I just needs to end things. Very desperate. He was a guy who had no inner peace. I don't think even he was searching for inner peace. But God can give inner peace to those who believe in Christ. By His death, He's broken down the barrier wall between us and God. That's the sin between us. And that is really the emphasis of the book of, of Hebrews. It's what... God did through Jesus Christ. He reconciled us to Himself. He abolished the enmity of our sin. And He did it with one sacrifice. So I think back upon the book of Hebrews, I say there are really three verses that have stirred my soul more than any other verses. They're all found in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 10. Chapter 10, verse 14. And chapter 10, verse 18. And they all say the same thing. And they're getting at how to have peace with God. Verse 10 says, By this will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is, by the will of God, Jesus coming in the flesh, He has sanctified us by one offering for all time. The second one in verse 14 says, By one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That is, Jesus in offering Himself once in contrast to the priests who offer themselves again and again and again and again. He did it just once. He perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And then verse 18 says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, referring back to the new covenant, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, when Jesus came and took our sins and pushed them as far away as the east is from the west, you don't need a sacrifice again because our sins are gone. And those three verses speak about peace with God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ bringing us to God, bringing us peace, and we can have the peace that my friend never knew. Peace with Him. What a great thing from the God of peace. Well, let's back up again. See the whole word. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is in this verse. He brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. You know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead hasn't been a a predominant theme in Hebrews. In fact, not mentioned at all in the book of Hebrews. Not once. Except here. He brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, that's not to say it's not important. It's not to say even that the resurrection isn't in Hebrews. It is, but it doesn't explicitly say it. It is there by implication. Several occasions we read of Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God four times in this book. And if He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, then He's alive and well. It implies a resurrection. And on top of that, Jesus isn't just sitting there as a corpse. He's sitting there active and living and doing things. He is described as our high priest. The high priest who, who hears our prayers and pleads God's mercy on our behalf. In fact, even pleads when we're not praying because it says He ever lives to make intercession for us on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 And there it is. He lives on. He's ever living to make intercession for us. And though the resurrection has never been explicitly said here in the book of Hebrews, here it is mentioned and it is important. In fact, it's the resurrection that puts God's seal upon His sacrifice. Apart from this resurrection, His death would have been meaningless in some sense. We wouldn't have known that God accepted His sacrifice. But with the resurrection, Jesus shows that God did indeed accept His sacrifice. The resurrection enables Jesus really to be our help. He's alive. He lives to make intercession. In church family, I just say, we serve a risen Lord who is risen and we can come to Him. Hebrews 4, 14-16 Get these words deep in your soul. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Tim read this for us in the service today, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He's our high priest. He's our great high priest. He's passed through the heavens, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our belief in Him. Because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. For this reason, then it says in verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So call upon Him. He is alive. He is interceding. He is there. He is willing and able to help give mercy and grace. And who doesn't need mercy and grace? It's what we need. Let's step back. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of of the sheep through the blood of His eternal covenant. Even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do His will. Working in us that which is good and pleasing. Working in us, I was to say. 
that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's pick it apart again. Next phrase. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. You can see it right there. He is called the great shepherd of the sheep. That's even higher than Jesus called Himself. If you remember John chapter 10, He said, I am the, what? The good shepherd. He didn't say I was a great shepherd. He said, I'm the good shepherd. But here in Hebrews, He's elevated to being the great shepherd. I think that's consistent with the whole letter, right? The whole letter just speaks about how great and awesome and excellent Jesus is. And how appropriate. He's not just a high priest. Not only is He a good high priest, He is the great high priest. And so likewise, He is the great shepherd. That is, the shepherd above all shepherds. When He says He's the great high priest, there were many high priests, but He is the one that stands above and beyond all of them. And Jesus is the great shepherd that stands above and beyond and higher than all pastors and elders and overseers, bishops, and anybody that would shepherd the church of God. It is Jesus Christ, as Peter called Him, the chief shepherd the one great shepherd who over-shepherds everything, and I'm so thankful for that as a shepherd of God's church, that Jesus is the great one who looks over His sheep and who cares for His sheep and who guards His sheep and who protects His sheep and who provides for His sheep. And Jesus said it in John 10, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Jesus does in a far greater way more than what any human shepherd ever will be able to do. He gives, He cares, He grants life, He keeps, He guards, He protects, and no wolf is going to get His sheep. What a comfort that we have a great shepherd who watches over us, who is ready to help us. Alright, let's put it back. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to focus now upon that next phrase about the eternal covenant which He purchased through His blood that is purchased through His death. We've heard of the old covenant. We've heard of the New Covenant, but we've never heard of this eternal covenant in the book of Hebrews anyway. What is this eternal covenant? Well, the key to figuring it out, I think, is to go back to the Old Testament. Say, is the Old Covenant, is the eternal covenant ever mentioned in the Old Testament? And it is. At least six times. In Isaiah twice, in Jeremiah twice, in Ezekiel twice. Um, they sound like this. Isaiah 55, verse 3, Incline your ear and come to Me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Or Jeremiah 32. It's real close to New Covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of Me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from Me. Or Ezekiel 16, verse 60. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of a youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Just again and again, the everlasting covenant. And when, when you look even in the context what's surrounding those verses, when you, you look and see what he's talking about, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the new covenant. The eternal covenant and the new covenant are one and the same. But 
calling it the eternal covenant has implications. And here's what I think the implications are. Is it will continue forever. It will be forever lasting. In other words, it's the last covenant that God will ever have to make with men. A little bit like this. My neighbors are uh, retired. And uh, their roof on their, their house was um, needing replacement. And so they're in the process. They replaced it. just finished yesterday. And I remember talking to them about having it replaced. And they said, this would be the last roof I ever put on my house. Because they're old. They're at retirement age. And 30-year roof. They're not going to be around when this roof is done. It's like the last one that they've got to deal with. And so likewise, this eternal covenant, this everlasting covenant with God is the last covenant that God needs to make with us. It is the new covenant. See, when the prophets spoke of a new covenant, they thereby made the old covenant old. In fact, it was in talking of a new that they make the old one old. That's how the writer argues in Hebrews chapter 8. He says, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Verse 13, But when he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. So mere mention of a new covenant means there's an old covenant, means it's going away. But in the word new covenant, there's no promise that he's not going to talk about a a newer covenant. That's what I'm saying? There could have been a newer covenant coming along. But it's not. Because the new covenant is the everlasting covenant that is here, here to stay. It's never going away. And it came through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the blood of the eternal covenant. That's how we know the eternal covenant is the same thing as the new covenant because the new covenant was brought about by the blood of Jesus, His death upon the cross, and so likewise the eternal covenant came the same way. And this covenant will continue throughout all eternity. Last year, Visa um, held a sweepstakes where the winner would get Super Bowl tickets for life. Any of you have a Visa card... How many have Visa cards? Okay, some of you may be MasterCard. If you have a Visa card, you enter that sweepstakes every time you made a transaction, whether you knew it or not. So think about it. And then what they do is pick one random winner out of all those transactions. Billion transactions. I'm not, not sure exactly how many, but you all entered. And I know you didn't win. But Super Bowl tickets for life. Tickets, airfare, hotel, $3,400 spending money for life. I wish I won. <laughs> for as long as I would live, I'd be able to go to the Super Bowl. As long as I'm alive. Hopefully, there's many, many more years to come. 44 right now, so another 50 years puts me in 90. 50 Super Bowls all paid for. What a wonderful thing that is. But this eternal covenant is much better than that. It doesn't just last for, last for a lifetime. It lasts for eternity. And if the Lord would tarry, it lasts for this generation and the next generation and the next generation. It's lasted now for 2,000 years and will continue on forever. It's no accident when you read of worship in heaven, Jesus is worshipped as a slain lamb, worshipped because of His sacrifice, which He purchased and brought in the new covenant, which is the eternal covenant. This is heaven forever. We're going to be worshipping a crucified lamb. Revelation 5, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because, here's why Jesus, you are worthy to be praised because you were slain 
Because you were slaughtered, because you were sacrificed, you were pierced through for our transgression, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, people, and nation, including Americans. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It's the crucified Lamb that will be our, our worship forever eternally. That's the eternal covenant which He brought about through the blood of Christ. Let's step back. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's look now at verse 21. Let's look at the prayer. Verse 20 is a summary of what God has done for us in Christ. And verse 21, now He gets to the request of what God will do in Christ's people. And here's the request that He might equip you in every good thing to do His will. Ephesians 4.12, we read that the, the role of leaders in the church is to equip the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, the church isn't merely to be run by the leaders who do everything. Rather, the people have a crucial role. The people are to serve in the church. The leaders equip and the saints serve. And remember when it happened that the leaders were serving and doing everything and Acts chapter 6 records the story that they were serving the widow's tables but there was so much to do and trying the ministry of the Word. There's so much to do that everything was a disaster. The tragic. They couldn't do it all. Important things were being neglected. The widows were being neglected. The Word of God was being neglected because they even said it's not good for us to neglect the Word of God to serve the tables but they weren't even serving the tables well enough. And so it was all falling down on these leaders who tried to do anything. So what they did, they equipped others for the work. They selected seven to go do the work and they helped them in that work. And so they could focus their attention upon doing what only they could do. That's how the church should work. The leaders equip and the saints serve. But here we see the true reality of what happens in the church. Yes, the leaders are working hard equipping, but in the end, who's equipping? It's God who's equipping in the end. What a prayer. God... May you equip your people to do your work. Now, let's not ever think that God merely just lets us go either. Um, Meaning that um, it's not just that, that He equips us and then lets us go. No, He works. He works with us as well. He doesn't just set us off and say, okay, how are you going to do? Well, here's how you did, here's how you didn't do. No, God is involved in working the process the whole time because if it was just up to us, God gets us once, sends us on our way, we'd be sunk. We need God's sustaining grace through the whole thing. We'd never achieve anything. We need God's help to do God's will. In, in other words, right, we need a divine gift to keep the divine commands. That's how the prayer ends. In fact, look at 21. May equip you in every good thing to do His will. Here it is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. In other words, the prayer is that God would so equip His people to do His work by doing it Himself. Equip them in every good thing, working in us to do it Himself. And that is indeed what God is doing. It's all over Scripture. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. You are fearful about your salvation because it's God is the one who's doing the work. And you desperately need Him to do the work because if He abandons us, we're done. We're sunk. 
I love Augustine's famous prayer, grant what you command and command what you desire. In other words, God, the things that you command us to do, so work in us that you might see them done. It's the heart of Christian ministry. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, we proclaim Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then Colossians 1.29, the very next verse says, for this purpose, Paul says, I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. There's the call is to preach and teach and admonish every man in Christ. And he says, I'm laboring, but what am I laboring? I'm laboring with Jesus working right in me. It's Paul's personal testimony. He says, I labored more than all of the other apostles. And then when he got down to it, he said, but not I, but the grace of God with me. In other words, Paul labored more than Peter. Paul labored more than James. Paul labored more than Matthew or Thomas or Bartholomew. He worked harder and he labored far more. But what did he say? Not me. I didn't do it. God's grace is what did it in me. God's grace energized him. That's Christian ministry. That's Christian life. So God, equip us in every good thing to do Your will and work within us what's pleasing in Your sight. You know, it's a little bit like the little girl who wants to make some cookies. We have some experience with that a little bit. Some of you are small girls. You know that a little bit. The little girl needs help reading the recipe. She needs help finding the ingredients on the shelves. She needs help in moving the chair up to the counter. She needs help in getting the right measurements out. She needs help mixing the ingredients right. Ingredients right. She needs help putting the cookies on the cookie sheet. She needs help with the oven. She needs help in setting the timer and she needs help taking the cookies out of the oven because it's hot. And in the end, you know what she says? Look at the cookies I made, Daddy! That is our Christian life. That is our Christian life. Certainly she made the cookies. But his mom behind the scenes gave direction, counsel. No, honey, you're not doing this. You need to do this. You need to help here. and do. That is your Christian life. And if you disagree with that, then you've got to think about even the next phrase because the next phrase says this, God is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because to Jesus Christ gets all the glory of anything done in the church, of anything that we do, of any labor that we give. And if we labor by our own strength, who gets the glory? We do. And that, by the way, is wood, hay, and stubble to be burned. But if we labor according to the strength which He gives, who gets the glory? He gets the glory. What an amazing thing. God commands. He strengthens and enables. He does the work. And then He gets the glory. And we're like, thanks for the ride, God. What a great, what a great thing. So let's acknowledge these things and give glory to God. And now as we repeat this prayer, Rather come with full intent. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. There's my benediction. There's a benediction. But we still have four verses to go. And you call this a brief exhortation. Verses 22 through 25. See if you can pick out those words. A brief exhortation. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. 
For I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. I take my phraseology of a brief exhortation right there from verse 22, but I bear, but I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation I've written to you briefly. It is a brief exhortation. So what's he referring to when he talks about a brief exhortation? Any ideas on that? What's he referring to? What's his brief exhortation? What? Help me? The book of Hebrews. Okay? That's a brief exhortation. How long does it take to read through the book of Hebrews? <laughs> to read through it. I said before, this is a sermon that's kind of put down now. It's adapted in written form. How long does it take to read through it? 45 or 50 minutes. That's a brief exhortation. I'll leave the implications about my sermon link to you. But, the author's here urging them to bear with it because some of the things have been hard. I mean, when you read about chapter chapter 6, about falling away, and you read in, in chapter 10 about how Anyone who died, set aside the law of Moses dies without testimony on the basis of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled in the foot of the Son of God, regardless of unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Way more than Moses. When you get to chapter 12 and realize that our God is a consuming fire, and if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we refuse Him who warns from heaven. I mean, these are some pretty heavy exhortations. And so that's why He's begging and pleading that they would bear with this word of exhortation, these commands, these calls from God about how we ought to live. Now, the form of this exhortation is pretty clear. It's quite easy. Over and over and over and over again, He speaks of how Jesus is great, the excellencies of Jesus, how He's better than anything else that you might have. And particularly for the Jews, this is a Hebrew letter, everything that you might have left, Jesus is better. They left the ways of the Old Covenant. They left the priests and the sacrifice, the stipulation of those covenant. And the temptation is to return again to those things. But over and over he says, no, 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 Jesus is better. He's better this way. He's better this way. And just comes at it and says, Jesus is better. And tries to leave them no room and no doubt about returning. Rather, continue in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if I have put it right, Jesus is better, so press on. And that's the last time you're going to see that slide is today. Jesus is better, so press on. In, lightness, in light of the greatness of Jesus, trust in Him. And that's His brief word of exhortation. And, and you get a sense of maybe why they need this, because things are difficult. Let me look at verse 23. It gives you an idea of, of just a taste of the difficulties going on here. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. With whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. So Timothy somehow is bound and now he's released. He's obviously talking about jail. Timothy, the pastor that we'll read about in Second Timothy when we go over that, was imprisoned. He wasn't in jail for murder or theft or assault or anything like that. He'd been in prison for being a faithful pastor, for preaching the Gospel, for preaching the glories of Jesus. And people hate that. Particularly, you can read of the riot that took place in Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. He was probably in jail in Ephesus by the governmental authorities who hated the fact that he was turning people from idols 
serve the living God. And they hated that, so they persecuted him at with that. And then he was in prison, but for some reason now he's he's been released and somehow the, the writer to the book of he, the writer of the Hebrews, whoever that may be, only God knows his origin says he wants Timothy to come to him soon. And and if he does, then he's going to go and see these people wherever they are. A lot of a lot of mystery surrounds exactly the circumstances here. Even in verse twenty four you might get a, a sense maybe of, of where they are. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. It, it may be that he's in Italy saying, okay, we're, we're greeting you wanting to go back to Jerusalem. That may be the case. Or it may be that they're in Jerusalem writing to Rome and saying these, the, Jew, the, the Italians here in Jerusalem, those from Italy are greeting you. We have no idea. But somehow he wants to be with them. Somehow Timothy has just been released. It's not easy in the environment of the day. It's not calm, peaceful, easygoing, all things smooth like our American Disneyland life is. Things were hard. Pastors were imprisoned. Following Jesus meant you could be thrown in prison. It, it's not in a vacuum that Hebrews 13, verse 3 comes. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those were ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. We see two different characteristics of people here. See, we see the prisoners who are in prison. Why are they in the prisoner? prison? Because they're Christians. And you need to remember them. And there are others who are ill-treated, re-tortured, because they're still in the body. They haven't died yet from their torturing. And you guys are still in the body. So remember these people. Prison then isn't what prison is today. Uh, about a month ago, 59-year-old Richard James Verone. Maybe you heard about this guy. He uh, handed a note to a bank teller demanding a dollar, saying that he was armed. So the bank teller, scared, this guy's got a gun, went, gave him a dollar. And then when he, he received the dollar from the teller, he said, thank you very much. Um, I'll be sitting right over there. You can call the police any moment. So he sat down right there with his dollar in hand. And uh, 911 was called. The police came, found him sitting right there and arrested him. What a bizarre thing. Why would someone do that? Medical care. The guy's got some medical issues in his life. He's got a growth in his chest, two ruptured discs, no job, and he's hoping that his time in prison will afford him with some medical care. He was unarmed, completely harmless, but he's just showing that that's his aim. Well, that's not prison in the first century. Something's dreadfully wrong with prison in our century. Those days, prisoners had no rights, thrown into the pit, smells of sewer because where they stayed was their sewer. No toilets, no cot and three hots, as they say today. Didn't provide you with your meals. If you're going to survive, you need to have friends on the outside to come and bring you meals. Or bring you clothes. Or bring you warmth. Or bring you pillows. That's why we need to remember the prisoners. Because we need to go to them and help them as fellow believers. And if your friends didn't bring you those food, you die. Unless someone else's friend and you, they probably work together as a team to try to survive in that pit. There's no free health care. And you were thrown in prison because of your beliefs. If you would, um, you'd be thrown in prison as one thing, but also if you weren't thrown in prison, you could also have your property confiscated. Chapter 10, verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. There it is, visiting the prisoners. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better position and a lasting one. If you weren't in prison, if you're remembering them and visiting them, 
then you might just have your property confiscated because you visited the Christians. Oh, you must be a Christian too. Let's go after you. Visiting the prisoners was a dangerous thing. And that's what's happening in the church here he's writing to. It's a very dangerous, hard time. The interesting thing is, persecution could be stopped in a moment. They could stop it at any time. All they had to do was renounce Jesus, go back to their old covenant ways. But the brief exhortation of the book of Hebrews is trying to make that impossible. No, Jesus is so better. Why would you go back that way? No, stay with Jesus. And even the persecution, the difficulties, the jail, imprisonment, the, the property confiscated, it's still worth it. Press on. And that's the brief exhortation. I, I trust you remember the structure of the book. Right? Interleave throughout this whole greatness of Jesus, five warning sections that come in there. There's one in chapter 2, there's one in chapter 3 and 4, there's one in chapter 6, one in chapter 10, one in chapter 12 that, that increase in intensity. I mean, in chapter 2, it just says, well, don't drift from the gospel. And, and in chapter 3 and 4, it says, don't harden your heart. And, and in, in chapter, uh, chapter 6, it says, you need to press on. And in chapter 10 and chapter 12, it just continues to get worse and worse. It says, your punishment would be worse than that of, of Moses. And same message in chapter 12, that our God is a consuming fire. He might just consume you as well. Increasing intensity. And it makes sense because as Jesus is shown greater and greater and greater, with greater revelation comes more responsibility. And so thus, the severity of the warnings. On the one hand, this book is all about Jesus. On the other hand, it's all about exhortations. Brethren, I urge you to bear with this word of exhortation. Know that Jesus is better. Not, not just in your heads, but know it in your hearts. Feel it in your souls. In church body, I'm going to go over this one last time. It may crop up again in my preaching, but just think through the book of Hebrews. Jesus is a better revelation than the prophets. Hebrews 1. 1. He is better than the angels because the angels worship Him. He's of a different class. It's worshipped by the angels. He is better than Moses because Moses was a servant in the house where he was a son over the house. He gives a better rest than Joshua because Joshua gave them a shadow of a rest. But he gave an eternal rest as we trust and rest in Him. He's better than any of the high priests because they are filled with weakness, have to offer a sacrifice for themselves, where Jesus was so good and so perfect and so strong that He sacrificed for us. His priesthood is better because it's an eternal priesthood based on the order of Melchizedek, not the Levitical priest which had to have more and more priests all the time. But He had one priesthood which made it a forever priesthood, which means that His priesthood is better. He is the mediator of a better covenant which has been acted on better promises and been inaugurated by a better sacrifice. All the things just point to how much better Jesus is. And my heart for you all this morning, church family, is that, that these would not just be surface things you know in your head that you could rattle off the outline of Hebrews like I just did. But they'd be deep down convictions your soul. You know, a, um, a conviction, by what I mean by that is a conviction isn't something you hold to. A conviction is something that holds you. And I want you to be so held by the conviction of the supremacy of Jesus Christ that you pursue Him bar everything. And that makes so much sense in light of His calls to discipleship, right? In Luke chapter 14, when He's just talking about, you want to be My disciple? Well, no one can be My disciple who doesn't hate his own father and mother and brothers and sisters. 
Because Jesus is so supreme, that's your desire above all anything. Whoever does not carry up his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. Where the life that we have in Jesus is worth far more than the earthly life. The psalmist said it well, thy loving kindness is better than life. Because we love the loving kindness we have in Jesus far better than we love this life. Far better than our possessions. Jesus says in Luke, 20, Luke 14, 33, so then none of you can be my disciples. Do not give up all his own possessions, right? It's the thing of the stuff that we have of the world. It's the danger of America. We've got so much stuff. But when those things hold you, you're, you're, you're in danger of not being able to be a disciple of Christ. That's why it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus ought to be so, so glorious. And, and, and we ought to love him so much that our earthly possessions are nothing. It makes us freely givers. Give away, borrow, lend, share a whole life. We give it and we sacrifice it for others. And being convinced in your heart of hearts with a conviction that Jesus is better will keep you on this path. It will prevent you from drifting. It will keep your heart soft. It will give you strength to press on. It will restrain your willful sin and it will prevent you from refusing Him. And when Jesus is your all in all, you won't follow your celebrity and their sin. And when Jesus is your all in all, your co-workers who slander around the office won't have any part of you. When your family members entice you to evil, you will press on in the right way. I say, are you convinced that Jesus is better than anything? You might be here just saying, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, it's a call of the Bible. It's to say Jesus is far better than anything that we have. I don't care what you have. It's far better than anything. Psalm 73, Asaph cried out, Whom have I in heaven but you? It's a good question. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's the end of the call of the book of Hebrews. To desire God and desire Jesus above everything on the earth. That's where I wish to end. I just want to, want to say, can you say that of Jesus? Can you say, I desire Jesus more than my checking account? Can you say, I desire Jesus more than I desire my iPod? You say, I desire Jesus more than I desire my vacation. You say, I desire Jesus more than I desire my movies. Can you say, I desire Jesus more than I love my Facebook. I desire Jesus more than I desire my food. I desire Jesus more than my health club. I desire Jesus more than my sports team. I desire Jesus more than my coffee. I desire Jesus more than my really cool car. I desire Jesus more than my fashionable clothes. I desire Jesus more than my grades. I desire Jesus more than my popularity. I desire Jesus more than a good, well-paying job. I desire Jesus more than a good career. I desire Jesus more than a nice house. I desire Jesus more than a nice place set for my children. I desire Jesus more than my television. I desire Jesus more than my pets. I desire Jesus more than the internet. I desire Jesus more than my 401k plan. I desire Jesus more than my cabin at the lake. I desire Jesus more than my health. And we could go on and on and on and on. These are just some things that I wrote, some which hurt me and some which may hurt you. That's the aim of the book of Hebrews is to so magnify Jesus that everything else just pales in comparison. They wouldn't have a desire to go the ways of the world 
May God strengthen us to live that way. And a good way to end is with this last phrase. We've not touched anything upon yet. Just verse 25. It's going to be really quick. It's a standard salutation at the end of every letter. It just says, grace be with you. In other words, right? may God's empowering grace be with you with all that we have said. And thus we finish the book of Hebrews. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is better. May we press on. May we strive to rest. May we keep in the way. May we believe that He's faithful. May we believe He's given us rest. And believe that He's of a different being than the angels. And that He's a better leader than Moses and more trustworthy than any of the high priests and gives a better rest than Joshua and has brought in a better covenant which is an everlasting eternal covenant and is the one who strengthens us to do our will, to do Your will. Help us, O Lord. Let's pray that that the fruit of these two years just going through Hebrews might pile up on itself. That we'd never forget His supremacy. We'd never quit our walk with Christ. God, because He's a merciful and faithful High Priest. God, we don't come perfect in any way. We come as sinners. We come not even trusting our own strength to accomplish Your will. We come trusting You by the strength with You supply. I pray that You would come and that You would equip us everything to do Your will. May we end, O Lord, with these words. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, I don't know how to finish. I then just say this is the, the Word of God. May it deep in our hearts.